Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best of the best to help you scale your business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest is Colin Cox, the founder of Cox Consulting. Colin, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. I'm really thrilled to be here. My pleasure. And uh, uh, let, let's get to know more about yourself. And uh, please let us know also, where are you joining from? Yeah, I'm, I'm joining from Vancouver, BC in Canada. Amazing. Uh, and a little bit about myself. Yeah, I'm the, the founder of Cox Consulting now. And, you know, I, I do a mix of different things for clients across all different industries. Um, but really, my, my professional career was 26 years in technology and video games. So started my career uh, in 1993 at Electronic Arts, EA Sports, as a 15-year-old kid. And that sort of kicked off this, this 26 years in tech. Uh, you know, so I could go into there a little bit deeper if you like, but uh, that's kind of the gist of, of me. And, uh, you know, I left that, that career in tech in 2019 mm-hmm. and just set out to be an executive coach consultant and loving what I do these days. Love it. And you, you have been representing some companies that are very well known uh, in the markets, such as... Uh, Rackspace, but you you can introduce uh, the audience a bit better. Yeah, yeah. So I I guess the the three main organizations I've worked for in my career have been Electronic Arts, Rackspace, and uh, Demonware, which uh, Demonware is owned by Activision, which publishes Call of Duty, uh, which some of your readers may, listeners may be familiar with. Uh, But yeah, here's here's the longer story of, of my career there. You know, I I was, a, I was a pretty good student in school in the early 90s, but I, you know, I didn't feel like I was learning a lot about technology and computers. And I was teaching myself at home. You know, my mom brought home a, a, you know, a 386 SX uh, PC way back then, and I took it apart one day. She came home nearly at a heart attack, and I, I put it back together for her. So I, I taught myself computers. Um, in those early days. And, you know, I was a big uh, ice hockey player mm-hmm. in Canada. I loved it. And when I was 15, I tore my knee ligaments playing hockey, I tore my ACL and my MCL. And that really, that sent me into a pretty dark downward spiral. You know, I started to get depressed. I started to hang around with the wrong crowds. And, uh, and I dropped out of high school in, in grade 11. So I've never actually finished high school. But I was really lucky, you know, my mom worked for a, a government funded program called Burnaby Family Life here. And uh, they had programs to help troubled teenagers and battered women and single moms. And, you know, my mom said, hey, Colin, if you're not going to go back to, to, to high school, why don't you go in this program? They'll teach you how to write a resume, how to do an interview. They'll teach you some soft skills and they'll help you find work placement where you go work somewhere for five weeks, get work experience. This government funded program pays you and the organization gets your free labor. So I thought, okay, I'll do this. And I, I went in there and I was in there with 15 year old gang members and drug dealers. And I thought, wow, this isn't my crowd. What have I done? And, you know, Mike, this is the biggest stroke of luck in my life, I'm sure. But I wrote down on the application form for that program under hobbies, I wrote video games. Mm -hmm. and the program coordinator 
Linda Byron came to me and said, hey, Colin, you know, we had a student prior go do their work experience at Electronic Arts. Would you like to go do that? <laughs> and I Amazing. thought, wow, of course I would. You know, everyone else is going to sort of retail shops to get their experience. I got to go to EA in 1993 when it was 60 people in EA Vancouver. Wow. Yeah. So super lucky. And, you know, I was meant to do my five weeks and leave and go back to grade 11. But I thought, you know, this is the intersection of my passions, technology, video games, and sports. Why would I ever leave here? Right. Yeah. So that, 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 that was how it all kicked off. Sounds amazing. What a great uh, start. So much inspiration uh, to start your day in, in Vancouver and to kind of conclude my, my evening uh, in Portugal at the moment. So usually in, in across Barcelona and, and, and London. So it's great, it's great again to have you here and, and thanks so much for sharing your story and uh, for inspiring all of us. So let's go into kind of discuss our usual free critical ingredients to, to scale, kind of using your experience across uh, all these uh, companies, namely electronic arts, as you mentioned. And um, so we always cover radical focus, world-class leadership, and the culture of execution. The radical focus is one of the, one of the topics that is the most difficult to explain to first-time entrepreneurs or even to second and, and fourth time. That, that's, that's a very important lesson to learn, but sometimes it takes uh, some time to, um, to digest. And uh, because, yes, it's great to have an amazing vision, to have a huge vision, but we need to be able to create a narrative in order to shift that vision. And we need to go niche by niche. So I think that's the, the worst thing that we can do with our strategy is trying to be everything to everybody. Is, and when we look for a very big market, sometimes that's what, what we are doing instead of slicing that market and creating a narrative to conquer that big market in different stages. So focus is really something really, really important. And what, what are some of the stories that you would like to share um, about your lessons learned um, during your 26 years in tech? Yeah, and it, do you want to start with radical focus? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. so with, with radical focus, and, it, and, and again, just to go a little bit deeper in, in my career, you know, seven years at EA, I, I left in 2000 at the height of the dot-com bubble to go to a startup. And uh, it was terrible timing, really, uh, to leave, leave behind the safety of EA. But I went to a, a startup that failed after a few months and then um, ended up working for a printer software company that moved me from Vancouver to Oxford, England. And, uh, you know, I spent several years at this company called Software Imaging in Oxford. Uh, interestingly, while, while working there, I was reporting to a CFO and I had this gap of education on my CV or my resume. You know, I didn't want to be pigeonholed as sort of a tech manager my whole life. So I started to look at what I could do to address this. And I found through the Open University a, a one-year certificate in management. And they said, well, Colin, if you do that, do the second year diploma in management, we'll take that and your years of management experience as a prerequisite, we'll accept you into our MBA program. Mm -hmm. So I did that and uh, you know, took four years while having a, a young family in Europe. Um, you know, I wouldn't necessarily recommend doing an MBA while having a small family working full-time at the same time, but that, wow. that's what we did. 
congratulations <laughs> uh and oh my goodness was my wife ever supportive through that like she's the real hero uh of, of that story um but yeah, so I had that time at software imaging and then I, I went to Rackspace, uh, which a lot of your listeners will know, spent four years there in the London office. And then eventually I moved to Demonware as chief operating officer, spent seven years across Dublin and Vancouver, leading Demonware's people across uh, Dublin, Vancouver, Shanghai. So that's sort of where I'll, I'll draw these, uh, these stories from. And th through all of that, what I've noticed about radical focus, I, I observe most teams take on way too much. There's way too much appetite and there's a misjudgment of capacity and commitment. <laughs> and, and the result I've seen, and I've been guilty of this, the result I've seen is that you do a subpar job on the real priorities. <laughs> you know, it takes you longer or you don't get to the quality you want because you're just trying to do too much. Exactly. So I see that very consistently uh, in, in teams, just, just misjudging this capacity and this commitment. So you know, there's a there's a book, the the four disciplines of execution, and uh, if I remember right, I, I think their view is, you know, if you have five priorities as an executive team, you're going to do great on zero of them, and if you want to do great on one priority, you should have one, and I'm not sure that translates to every industry and every organization, but I I think it does hold true that most teams just don't have a real focus because they're trying to do too much. Absolutely. I was trying to look to the to the book here in the office because I have it in front of me. It's one of my major inspirations. So it's it's really coincidence that you are mentioning uh, that that book. And it's super super simple. It's kind of four steps uh, about bringing focus. And and one of the principles that we always forgot or forget it's it's also to have a scorecard. So nobody would go for a game and just see people playing without having a scorecard <laughs> in place, right? And, yeah. and sometimes in business, that's what we do. We we are running, 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 and there is no scorecard visible for anybody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, when, like it, when it gets to the real world, this, this is where I see some of the challenges. Is it, you know, you, you we, we all hear this when everything's a priority, nothing is. But yet, Absolutely. like when you get in, in, in the real world, like it really does feel like you have to do everything. And I think there's a difference with the maturity of the organization. You know, you know uh, one organization I know about in, in um, international shipping, um, like they have guaranteed revenues eight years in the future. Mm -hmm. And then you look at tech startups and, you know, you don't really have anything guaranteed till next week sometimes. So I, I, what I observe is, you know, the, the, the people I work with in that are closer in the startup space, you know, it's definitely more shifting goalposts where you're trying to find product market fit, maybe in a market that's never existed before. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I've seen is, is having that be part of the culture where the CEO sets the tone that we are going to need to shift we're going to have a lot of wasted work because we're going to try some things. We're going to learn. We're going to need to pivot and change direction based on new information. And I find that that that's often frustrating for people, right? Like nobody wants to do work that gets wasted, Exactly. but having that culture set where, I mean, we need to expect this because of the nature of, of what we're trying to do. I think that helps to some degree. Absolutely. That's a very good point. And moving to into the second uh, point, the world-class leadership slash team slash uh, culture. Uh, 
we all know the, the importance of having the right people on the right seats for each stage of growth and how even more difficult is to make them play as a team in, in each of those stages of, of growth. So which means that for a scale-up, we need to be able to really create different teams uh, for to manage different companies across the scaling up stage. It, it's really definitely different teams for different companies. I would say that very, very few companies are able to play with the same team uh, during all the stages of growth uh, of, of the scale-up. What, what are some of the lessons or any stories that you'd like to share um, with the community today? Yeah, I 100% agree with that, Mike. You know, the, the one story that really comes to mind for me is, you know, in one organization I was working with, we, we had a facilitator come in to help with some strategic work. And they, they told our executive team, they looked at everybody and said, the likelihood that all of you are still here one year from now is, is not high. Good point. And it was just one of those moments of truth and honesty, right? And, and it was all in this context of, as an organization grows, the needs change. And the executive team needs to be able to level up to meet those changing demands. And, you know, this, this person's perspective was not all of you are, are likely able to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were right. You know, I think in that, that executive team of, of eight people, I think two, two were not there a year from then. And, you know, I, I find that, you know, this is where you start to get into, you know, one of the, one of the foundations of a high performing team is trust. Exactly. And when you build that trust, you build these strong relationships. And then what I find challenging is you get this, you know, the, the, these opposing forces of like doing what's right for the business and, and getting the right people on the bus for what the business needs, but you've got these deep seated relationships built on trust. And I, I think that's a risk is, is you end up keeping the wrong people on the bus longer just because you, you've got that loyalty and that commitment to them. Absolutely. That's a very good point. It makes me think about the, the amazing book of Patrick Lencioni, the, the five dysfunctions of a team. So lack of uh, trust, uh, fear of conflict, avoidance of accountability. I'm missing the fourth one, but the fifth one is inattention to, to results. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, trust, conflict, commitment, accountability, results. Accountability, exactly. You got it. <laughs> you know, Mike, here, here's a practical thing. If any of your, your listeners, you know, want to work on trust with the executive team or, or work on team performance. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, for years, you know, the teams I've been in and led, we've made it a, a habit to work mm -hmm. on executive team performance and health mm -hmm. and having an execution rhythm, like through the Rockefeller habits, through scaling up, you know, you can detach quarterly and and break your strategy into 90 day chunks, we would always spend time on, on executive team health and performance. And this one time we were working on, uh, on Lencioni's model. And mm -hmm. the way we did it, we started uh, by, by sort of scoring every aspect, trust, uh, conflict, commitment, accountability results from one to 10, where one is low, 10 is high. Trust. And we went around the room with trust and 
we wrote it on a post-it silently because if you know if you say your score the next person's influenced by you exactly so we we wrote down what were the scores for trust and this is what came out uh where where one is low ten is high two three one two four nine and the the nine was the, the ceo the C <laughs> good point so it just you know it opened up elephants in the room and it, it, it forced us you know to get down to a, a real conversation about you know why is trust broken here uh, mm -hmm. and we needed to get there to to elevate our performance as an executive team absolutely and especially in this kind of environment especially a, a tech scale-up where you have all those companies to lead uh, across a very short period of time and that definitely it's not because someone has anything wrong it's it's because the nature of the business the beast of the business is so aggressive so demanding that in order to double or triple a company every day uh, some of us might not be the right fit uh, for the next stage of growth and that's totally fine and the beauty also that we see in more, in more mature uh, ecosystems is that we have people that are specialized in kind of growing from one to five million ARR, from five to 10 or from 10 to 20. And they completely specialize on doing that again and again and again. So they already know after that kind of threshold, it's not for me anymore. So someone needs to bring to, to come in, to be part of the team and then go from the 10 to 20 or from the 22 to 50. Some of us will be long runners, right? The, the marathonists would like to stay in the ship for the whole journey, but they are very, very scarce, I would say, or very rare, those kind of um, people. Uh, and it's, it's all fine, but uh, I think that sometimes as executives, we feel that we might not be good enough if we are not able to stay through, to stay through all those uh, stages. And that's why I think that example that you shared, and I do the same uh, with my leadership teams, is to, is to say it from the beginning, we will not hide that. And we need to be able to always have an amazing environment and an amazing sense of belonging and trust in the team, even knowing that some of us will not be here. It's, it's not because we are betraying each other, it's because of the nature of the business. And that, that's two very different things. And I, I would say that I would appreciate to know from my team that I'm not the right fit than knowing by other people, right? Uh, and, and, or being surprised uh, in next week. So I, I think that those are some important reflections to, um, to have. And it's also not the norm um, because the majority of the businesses worldwide, 80% are family businesses and uh, those can be quite stable for obvious reasons, right? <laughs> Yeah, definitely. You know, what you're saying is there reminds me of something Andrew Wilkinson of Tiny Capital, I've uh, heard him talk about, which is sort of four, four sort of types of, of CEOs. And he, he talks about the burrito as the example, like, you know, the, the first type of, uh, of CEO or entrepreneur is the person who invents the burrito, right? The sort of creative. And then the next stage of, of leader there is the person who um, is able to sort of operationalize it, like create a chain of stores. 
And then the third person is the person who can scale it. Like, let's go from 10 stores to a thousand stores. And then the fourth person is the person who just like sustains and manages that. And so, uh, you know, what Andrew talks about is being honest with yourself, like knowing what, what type of leader you are and being okay to let go when the business requires a different type of leadership. Absolutely. It can be liberating. I think that's, that's the, the good part of it, right? So when we are able to get to know more about ourselves and who do we, who do we, we are, so we can have a better relationship with ourselves and with others and also add more value to, to society. So let's move into number three, a culture of execution. And uh, this is also one of my favorites. Uh, the three are, 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 are free critical ingredients that I really love. But um, I think that this is the one that we can control the most. So kind of focus, it is kind of a science and art really to know what needs to be done and what is focused and what is not focused is a little bit vague and it will depend from the context and it will depend from stage of growth to stage of growth, from company to company, from sector to sector, timing. So there are many variables. I sometimes feel it's kind of an art, kind of really assuring it with the right people on the right seats and making them a team. I think it's again, science. Of course, there are recruitment process that helps you get there. There are performance disciplines, but it's also, there are kind of a, an art component there also, knowing what tools to play in what sequence um, and, and being able to sustain and do it overall, different companies, different teams, I think it's, it's quite difficult. But this is, one, this is the one I think we can control the most, the rituals, right? We can, we, we have the framework. So if we can have a good, a good daily, we can have a good weekly, we can have a good uh, monthly, a good uh, quarterly, a good annual. So it, it's, a, it's a question of discipline. Uh, in the other ones, I think it is science plus art kind of uh, combination. How important are the rituals for you? And uh, again, do you have any, any stories, any lessons uh, representing your, your previous companies or, or advising your clients? Yeah. Yeah, I think the rituals are important in, in that they help, they help a, a, an organization and an executive team get away from just constant firefighting and reacting, right? The, the Eisenhower matrix, that urgent important quadrant where most people spend most of their time in, in my observation. So that quadrant two, the, the important but not urgent work mm. it, it is the opportunity to bring sanity and the execution rhythm is, is that, right? What I've found is that it forces your executive team to detach from working in the business to working on the business. Right. And I, I think it's so valuable. I'll give you an example. You know, when I joined uh, Demonware, uh, uh, Demonware is the online studio for Activision. So uh, Demonware took care of all of the online services, uh, takes care of all of the online services for Activision's games like Call of Duty. And when I joined uh, Demonware, um, you know, we didn't, we didn't have too much of a rhythm going and we, we had a clear strategy, which was really compelling. Ship Call of Duty and DFU, don't mess it up. That was Activision's expectation for us. And, and that was the, you know, that was our big rock every year, every November, you know, tens of millions of people are, are, are buying this game and, and coming to, to play and use your online services. So, you know, it, it's a, it's a daunting challenge. And, you know, we love that strategy because it was compelling and rallying and everyone could get behind it. But, you know, the issue, the main issue we had 
is that it required hero mode. And, you know, we were, we were burning out engineers year after year. And they're like, this is just unsustainable. This is, this is no way to keep going. We were building mountains of technical debt along the way. And so, you know, the demonware demanded of us as a, as a team, you know, we need something more than shit Call of Duty and DFU because it's unsustainable. So, you know, that's where, you know, one of the best things I believe we did was bring in an execution rhythm where we, you know, had an annual meeting to set the strategy, quarterly checkpoints to break it up into 90 day chunks and, and, and work on team. And, you know, we, we did weekly check-ins and then daily check-ins as well with, you know, our executive team was spread across Dublin, Vancouver. And, you know, here, here's the reality. It, it took us several quarters to kind of find our feet. You know, I, I feel like it, it looks simple on the surface to put it in execution rhythm. Exactly. And I, I don't know if it's because we were circumspect, you know, very critical thinking, engineering minded people, but we, we didn't want to just accept something off the shelf and do it because other people did it. We really wanted to evaluate how it could help us. And I think that's was helpful in that we learned a lot more about ourselves and about what we were doing. But it also it also took a bit of time to actually get it in and get it going as a rhythm. Um, but I found, you know, then it becomes like the drumbeat of your organization. And you can do things that help with with radical focus. You know, for example, if, if you're if you're if you've got that drumbeat to detach once a quarter and reset, you can you can pick those few priorities that actually really matter. And if your team keeps a, you know, a parking lot or a someday list, you can give yourself permission to say no or no, not right now. And you put those things on that list. And when you detach for your quarterly checkpoint, you can say, okay, are any of those things on our someday list actually things we need to prioritize now? And when you make really clear decisions, no, it's not. Now you can go back, head down and execute during the quarter. Absolutely. I think for, for the, the ones who are listening to the importance of a, an execution rhythm, and I fully agree with you, Colin, how difficult it is to implement. So when I started my advising CEOs and leadership teams, uh, I kind of started with kind of the quarterly mode. I would just get in every quarter and help them facilitate the quarterly. And after that, I quickly realized that in terms of the disciplines that I teach them uh, how to implement, how to kind of lead a weekly or a monthly, nothing was getting that. So I ask, how many weeklies or how many monthlies did you, did you did before this quarterly? And usually the answer was <laughs> not, not very positive. And I realized that I need to help them in the first 90 days really to implement that rhythm, even joining the weeklies and the monthlies until they were autonomous to manage it themselves. And I then can be only for the critical moments for, for the quarterly and keep doing one-on-ones um, in between the quarterlies to help them out with, with any issues. Of course, I would be happy to join a, a weekly from time to time to, um, to help them out. But I think it, it's really, really difficult and a little bit weird when you start um, that rhythm. So if this is happening to you, it is, normal for the ones who, who are listening get help and and in order to implement it not not by by myself but uh, I, i'm sure that other people that might be able to to help you out and it would be very very beneficial from my experience yeah 
Yeah, definitely. And one, one just practical tip that's helped a lot with me is you know, the, the teams I work with now uh, across all kinds of industries, when we're doing meetings like this, one common issue I see is just really, really long status updates in meetings, <laughs> right? If you're going around an executive team and saying, okay, you own this priority, yeah. you own this priority, where are we at? Quite often that person will talk until you shut them up, right? They'll, they, they'll want to be on page nine of a one page story. Absolutely. And so, you know, what I, what I advise is, you know, have, have a red, amber, green status for your priorities, like the more quantitative, the better, obviously. Uh, and then, and then when you get around to each member in the weekly, you just ask, Hey, are you stuck? Do you need help from anyone around the table here? And we, we try to keep it to that rather than just an endless nine page story that doesn't need to be there. Absolutely. And I would say that I like the quantitative and qualitative approach that you made because sometimes we even have a long story about the update without getting the update. So at the end, it's kind of what is the target and what is the current number? And it's because I'm not blaming you. It's just I want to know <laughs> where we are just to have an idea and to see if we, sh if we are where we should be or if there is any way that I can help right as part of the team because you can be accountable for that but i'm responsible as a team member for to all of us to get into our targets right so um that, that's a really good point is there anything that i should have asked you that i didn't ask well you know uh, there's one there's one aspect of this i'd love to hear your thoughts on which is you know the appropriate execution model for the different maturity stages of an organization, <laughs> you know, is the annual quarterly, monthly, weekly, daily rhythm just as appropriate for a tech startup versus, you know, a billion dollar business. And I'm curious, you know, what you've seen in, in your, your perspective on that. That's a good uh, question. Beck. <laughs> But yeah, I fully agree with you that uh, these, these principles can be applied to any company on the earth. Um, I would say that for, for scale-ups, because they double or triple every single year, communication al alignment is really, really important. And that's why sometimes we say that scale-ups don't die because of starvation. They die because of indigestion. They said there are too many things going on and they don't have the discipline and the courage to focus on what they need to focus in order to get to the next stage. And that's why the narrative, the chapters of the book, Uh, needs to be designed and kind of uh, revised every single quarter, as you said, every single year. So, and it, it's kind of a little bit uh, boring, but it's really, really important to really rethink your short, mid and long-term strategy every single quarter or at least every year. With, you, you don't need to rebuild it from scratch. It, it really touch it, kind of just review it. It's not kind of do a revolution and, and, and change it all. So maybe the, the, the more the revolution might be the annual, but the quarterly is it's really just refine, refine a bit, make it a little bit more clear. If it is just one of the chapters that is more clear or even more important, if the, the next chapter, the next 90 days are super, super clear and we all know what needs to be done, it already helps. So I think that's why it's so important to have this execution rhythm in this kind of companies. But I would say this rhythm, if you want to grow faster, if you want to have a healthier team, a better business, 
this applies to any kind of business on earth, right? Yeah. And you, you know, even for like tech startups where, you know, some of them might think like we, we have to come up for air and detach monthly or weekly just to, just to see how we're getting along with product market fit. I mean, would you ever advise people to do a, a quarterly type of meeting more frequently? No, that, that's, that's a great question. Uh, I, I believe so because, um, in a certain way, you are making kind of assumptions and hypotheses for the upcoming 90 days that you need to validate across the quarter. And one of the things that happens also too fast or too, is, is to change direction too often, right? So, so I feel that we would have a lot of topics to, to discuss, uh, Colin, but let's move into our favorite and, and last question of the show which is if you would have the opportunity to meet yourself uh, several years ago uh, in the beginning of your career, what advice would you offer to your younger Colin? Yeah, you know, I, I, th I think the biggest thing that comes to mind for me there is about being patient, like being more patient. And, you know, I, I feel like I, I have some perfectionist tendencies and that, that creates anxiety over always doing the best you can do and always being the best you can be. And, and you know, I, I hear this all the time that perfection is the enemy of excellence. And I really believe that, you know, but I, I think, I think I've always been a little too rushed. And the, the main advice I would give myself is, you know, be more patient, stay hungry, stay hardworking and stay humble, uh, but just be patient and enjoy the journey because it's, it's not such of a rush. Absolutely. That's a very good point. I would take it also for, for myself. Thank you so much for making the time, Colin. It was really a pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. I, I love this. This has been super fun. Absolutely. And we hope that this was super useful to you. We are sure it was. And we keep here bringing you the best of the best to help you scale our business from 1 million to 1 trillion. See you soon and keep scaling.